Canvas, art and ideas on FBI Radio. Good Sunday morning to you. This is Canvas, your weekly fine arts program on FBI Radio 94.5, and I'm your host, David Capra. And I'm your other host, Sabella D'Souza. Today is International Trans Day of Visibility, so we've got some special programming in store. But before we get into that, we'd like to acknowledge the rightful caretakers and custodians upon the land upon which we broadcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to our Indigenous listeners, our guests and elders, past, present and emerging. Canvas acknowledges that this land... Sorry... Um, trans, non-binary and gender diverse people have existed long before colonisation. Gender exists as a spectrum and beyond a spectrum under different names and different titles and will continue to do so. Canvas acknowledges that this land was never sold, traded or given up. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So, David, on that note, who are we hearing from today? Well, first up, we sit down with an artist and one of First Draft's board of directors, Oni Blue to chat about accessibility in the arts. And earlier this week, I got a chance to sit down with Archie Barry, a Melbourne-based artist who helped co-write Clear Expectations, which is a guideline for institutions and galleries working with trans, non-binary and gender non-conforming artists. It's a really great um, interview, so I'm really excited to play it. Yeah, and that was put together by the National Association for the Visual Arts, is that right? I think they funded it um, uh, along with the Countess um, project or report. Um, Yeah, so they helped out with that. Looking forward to that. And, well, we also have a new music curator gracing the Canvas Airways, Melbourne-based artist Makita, oscillates between oral, physical and curatorial practice. And she also performs locally and internationally at festivals and clubs, including Dark Mofo, uh, Cool Room, Soft Centre at Casula Powerhouse and the Cité in Paris and the Bossa Nova Civic. As a DJ, she started out on Brisbane's iconic 4ZZZ community radio station and has since become a staple, spinning and being spun on stations including Hope Street Radio, Triple J, and now Canvas. Uh, Well, let's get to our first track. (laughs) Very excited by Makita. The first one's called Baby K Interaction. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Kicking off the show, we heard from Queens-based hardware experimental techno producer via APP with a track titled Baby K Interaction from 2015. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio and I'm David Capra and we're joined in the studio right now with artist Oni Blue. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure. Thanks for being here. Oni is a non-binary Capricorn dominant slashy that lives with a chronic illness and disability. They are hoping in the future they may may transcend their flesh prison so they can get more stuff done. Me too. Mm. Um, They are also (laughs) studying and currently on the board of directors at First Draft Gallery. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so your work at times teeters between installation, ceramics and performance. What drew you to ceramics initially? Um, that's kind of a bit of an interesting question. It's not really what... Um, like, I always thought that ceramics was a bit naff um, and didn't really have anything to do with it. But um, when I was working on my grad show, 
I was working on a performance and there really wasn't anything for me to do with my hands, anything I was, I just needed to think a lot of the times. Um, so basically I, I spent a lot of time visiting um, friends of mine in the ceramic studio, um, Cal and Luke, and I think they eventually just sort of was like, just sit down and start throwing. Um, so, you know, I just started doing that as a way to kind of like have something therapeutic and meditative that I could just, I was working on while I was also coming up with ideas. It's an interesting way of problem solving, isn't it? Mm. Because that's what you're mainly doing, I think, when you're when you're working in ceramics, you're trying to make things balance and stand mm. upright and, yeah. yeah. I heard that you have an implant in your body that's a ceramic. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. So it's actually kind of funny because I, I, I think... I never thought that I would be a ceramicist, but I'm being known as a ceramicist. But also, um, yeah, I actually ended up having a total hip replacement a few years ago. And I think because of the the condition of my body and then where technology is at, I was able to have one of the best implants, which is uh, ceramic on ceramic. So, yeah, I feel like it's kind of a bit of an in-joke with myself that <laughs> I was um, bound to be a ceramicist. Um, Do you know where that ceramic piece came from or do you know anything about it? No, no, it's really, it's really super weird. Like you can actually look like when I was in the surgeon's office, there's all these kind of different kinds, which are pretty amazing. I used to joke to the surgeon that I wanted to get like, you know, a rose quartz crystal implant or something, (laughs) which he didn't think was very funny. Um, but yeah, um, I do. I also have metal as well. So I do set off metal detectors now anytime I go through the airport, which is always fun. Mm. (laughs) And your SCA grad show work was a performance that involved, well, a lot of kind of OH&S mm-hmm. um, and about 100 tiny individual cosmetic-considered tattoos. Could you tell us a bit about that work and process? Um, so the, the project was called um, 100 Needles. And so I was exploring... Uh, a lot of the work is sort of understanding my body as it sort of is always going through this perpetual shifting. Um, some of that is to do with trans stuff. Some of that is just general stuff that a lot of people experience, like getting old, um, your body changing size, whatever. Um, but I've also experienced a lot of sort of flux with disability. And so I was trying to conceptualise a work that was about the feeling of going to sleep, being put to sleep and waking up with a different body. Like, so I came out of surgery with a fundamentally different body that I had to then sort of recalibrate my understanding of of sort of what was going on there, what it looked like, what it felt like. And so the performance was um, sort of to be in deprivation. So I had no hearing, no sight. And it was sort of this sort of long endurance thing. I think it was like three or four hours or something where people were altering my body so we used I used sort of tattoo needles and tattooing as a kind of as a vehicle to understand the the change in body um so they were they were they were altering my body in a way that I didn't know and it was like this consensual non-consent as well which is what you sort of have with a surgeon which you're saying yes you can do this stuff to my body but also it you wake up and and, and it feels like a violation so the kind of performance was sort of trying to explore a lot of those sort of elements of sort of, you know, the then another experience of recalibration in my body and understanding how it had changed and what it looks like. And, yeah. and so there were tiny little blue pricks all over your body. Yeah. And, and so they were done by um, by friends, is that right? Yeah, so it was a... It seemed like it was open to the public, but mm. um, because of a lot of the oh and stuff that I had with the university, it ended up being a private guest list. 
So I sent out um, invitations that people had to then give to one of the the nurses that were helping with the performance and they had to sign a consent form to engage in the process. Um, Yeah, and they were given, um, you know, like disposable gloves and a single-use disposable um, five-round tattoo needle and we had ink for them and then they were allowed to tattoo me on any freckle that they could find. Um, I was only wearing a dressing gown so I was partially, mostly naked. Um, and they were this, the school had kind of come up with this crazy idea, which was that people were only allowed to press in once. Oh, so, <laughs> so it was this idea that maybe if there was an impermanence to it, then like you know legally we couldn't get in trouble or something. But um, yeah, people were only allowed to push in once. So some of them disappeared, and some of them um, people made an effort to really shove that ink in there. <laughs> so oh boy, how lovely! I know. <laughs> was it quite an intimate experience to have people do that to you? Yeah, it was really it was really strange and confronting. I think a lot of um, my friends felt kind of a bit horrible about it like they felt a bit bad about inflicting pain on me um and I also yeah it just I was quite like a little bit traumatized afterwards um and then it was also one of the interesting things was because it was within a university environment I had a lot of students who I hadn't actually been that close to who had then interacted in with my body in a very intimate way who then felt like that intimacy sort of continued um, so mm. I had people come up to me and just like touch my body to say hello or something in a way that I had never experienced with them before. But they had this intimacy that I didn't really, I didn't really reciprocate or understand because I had been in deprivation. So for me, that had not been real. Mm. I sort of, I sort of um, joked that it was like you know the ultimate party with this huge guest list of people I never saw. So because you know everybody came, but I didn't know who came. Like I didn't know. Keeping that in mind, let's go to our next track picked by Mikita. This is Royce in Murphy with Overpowered. I'm Sabella D'Souza and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 or via our digital stream. Overpowered is from Irish singer-producer powerhouse Royce and Murphy. I'm Sabella D'Souza. We're in studio right now with artist Oni Blue talking about their practice and accessibility in the arts. Oni, we're talking, we were talking a little bit about First Draft Gallery and you're a director there. Um, what excites you about being a director there? What, what are you lo- most looking forward to? Um, I think... My 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 answer to that is a little bit corny. Um, I'm actually super excited about like hanging out with the other directors. Um, like, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it is just sort of being um, in a situation where I'm learning off all of these mm. um, incredibly intelligent people who have such different like ideas to me. Um, they're they're all doing such different things with their lives. Um, so to me, that's a really big thing. It's like you're kind of forced into having this new friendship group. It's like a family. It humanises yeah. the artwork because I yeah. was a director there, I think, five yeah. years ago. And that's something that was very strong was it actually just made the experience of being involved in the art world human. Yeah. yeah. And like I had the experience of being involved with First Draft First as a curator and then to have the opportunity now to kind of give back and to sort of share that experience that I had you know, being able to put on the show there, being able to have funding, to have support, and how that sort of 
that opened up a lot of different things for me. It's It's been really nice to kind of change that my position in that situation and be able to offer, like volunteer my time and energy to offer that to other people. Um, yeah, and it is like a funny little family. Mm. Um, everyone is really funny, like actually really, really funny and kind. And yeah, so I think just working together, um, yeah, it's just super exciting. Um, sorry, I just got lost in the script just then. But you're, I guess I wanted to ask about accessibility because I know that's a, you've been having an ongoing kind of conversation with First Draft in regards mm. to accessibility in the arts. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about how that began? Um, so it actually began with uh, co-curating a show at First Draft a couple of years ago that was um, a show that was for uh, representing artists with disability and chronic illness. And so that sort of started this conversation about the not just the experience of how to go about um, like organising a show, but also the physical aspects of um, accessibility. So, um, you know, that was a de- that was like you know this. Even though I, I identify as a person with a physical disability, there's so much that you have to learn, and I can still even you know I can still be ignorant all the time, even though it's something that um, affects me. I think we're not educated enough about access- accessibility and disability. So. There was things that I sort of was like, oh, wow, this isn't great for me. This isn't great for other people. This isn't great for you guys. Um, and so just having these conversations with First Draft was really amazing. Um, they always took the time and energy to kind of like like work with me and work with us through that sort of challenging time um, because it was something as simple as like say there's a deadline Um you know, with people that have disability and chronic illness, we might be like, yeah, that's a deadline. We're going to be late. So if you really want that deadline, you need to ask us like a week or two beforehand Mm. so that we can be late. And then it's still, you know, it's still um, able to be done in time. Um, And so like, you know, now as a director, I'm able to continue those sort of conversations. And First Draft has been working really hard to consider all kinds of um, accessibility. And I think in the future, we're also going to do a bit more work with accessible arts, um, just to keep making the space be inclusive as possible and our programs and the way that people interact with art to be as accessible as possible mm. um, with the limitations that are always there, like stairs, you know. It, yeah, <laughs> it, and it is that idea of it being a process and being not yeah. just something that it's like, here's the policy, it's done, but it's this ongoing yeah. collaborative thing that different people are going to have different needs and we need to be able to be open to have those ongoing conversations. Yeah, like we found a really amazing resource that was from, I think it's a Trans Dublin Collective, and that was able to help us... Um, kind of look through our accessibility stuff it has like a lot of questions and then we were able to update our website with a lot more information because I think that's the thing it's not about being negative towards situations or spaces it's about um or just being like hi we're inaccessible end of story it's about giving people as much information as possible so that they can have the autonomy to decide if they can navigate that space or not Mm. so um you know just listing hey I'll bathroom has this many centimetres of a door, we have this many stairs, you know, the opening nights may be noisy, do you want to come a couple of hours mm. early and someone else can take you through? Just having all these options out there so that people can interact in a more accessible way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you also have a show coming up at Verge Gallery uh, in May and it's called Ob- Obliber... 
Obliteration. 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 Creation. Right. How's that going? You're preparing for that at the moment? I am preparing for that at the moment, which is quite challenging with the fact that I'm also doing honours and also first draft and also... I have limited capacity generally. Capricorns overcommitting to things. This is why I want to be a robot in the future. I'm like, like I, I have this contradiction where I'm a workaholic, but my body isn't committed to being a workaholic. So we have this kind of tumultuous relationship where I'm like, come on, let's do more. And my body's like, we're going to lay in bed all day. Yeah, I'm like, I want to get, I want to reach my final form and transcend yes. this mortal plane yes. and be able to be like, I'm ready. I can do so yes. many things. Yes. But I can only do so many things. Yeah. Um, so the Verge show, I'm super excited to be working with uh, Tisha again because Tisha was previously at First Draft. Um, and the exhibition is sort of, I think it's sort of exploring my own personal uh, sort of ritual practices of sort of understanding my body and sort of seeing obliteration as more of a, a creative ritual um, that you could interact with uh, obliterating your body um, and rebuilding it and that being um, a sort of survival tactic and something that can be positive. So for me, that has included things like surgery or hormones or cutting my hair or getting tattooed, um, exercise. There's all these kind of things where, you know, you can deconstruct and reconstruct your body in a physical sense more than in a kind of like spiritual thing, which is what obliteration is often sort of connected to. What what date is that open? Uh, That opens May 23rd, I am pretty sure. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Um, Also, just to reiterate, you know, today is um, International Trans Day of Visibility. Um, Do you have any, like, kind of just to summarise in the end of this um, interview, do you have any advice or words of support for young trans and gender non-conforming artists? Um, Well, I, I would like to say first off that I am not a spokesperson for trans people and no. um, or disabled people or anything. I'm just, uh, I just have my like messy, flawed opinions. But um, I guess like thinking about today, I don't get super engaged in a lot of sort of trans days. Um, I wouldn't have even sort of remembered that today was a trans day. But I think for me, I'm sort of trying to understand more about the sort of root of a lot of the sort of issues around this stuff so for me the root of transphobia is actually white supremacy and so trying to understand rather than focusing on sort of single issues that affect the lgbtiq community things like gay marriage or transphobia or whatever to go back to the root of everything which is white supremacy and understanding how i can learn more and um unpack and sort of um be in solidarity more around that as an issue because i think dealing with that will have a trickle-on effect for everything because, you know, if we're talking about visibility, the most disproportionate uh, people to be affected by transphobia is actually trans women of colour. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And also I think it's amazing if people want to go today and protest and have solidarity. I think uh, finding, like, for younger trans people, like, finding your community, finding your chosen family and uh, keeping yourself safe is the most important thing. Thank you so much for joining us. That was artist and board of director, First Draft, Oni Blue, who 
you can catch their solo show alliteration creation at Verge Gallery in May. <laughs> Thank you, Sabella. <laughs> and you can listen back to the interview on FBI.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This next track is Maya and Aguayo with their track Slow. This is Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Come on and dance with me. Just heard Slow by Maya and Aguayo, another mesmerising track handpicked by this week's guest music curator, Makita. I'm David Capra, and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. It's International Trans Day of Visibility and in celebration, but also solidarity, Canvas has dedicated today's programming to gender diverse trans and non binary artists. As part of this programming, I spoke to Archie Barry, an artist based in Melbourne who works across performance, video, music composition, and music composition about a recent publication titled Clear Expectations. Let's take a listen. Clear Expectations is a guideline for institutions, galleries and curators working with trans, non-binary and gender diverse artists. Written in collaboration between Sydney-based artist Spence Messi and Melbourne-based artist Archie Barry, the resource was published through the National Association for the Visual Arts and the Countess Report. I sat down with Archie Barry to talk about the guideline and their work last Friday. Thanks so much for taking the time and labour to chat with me about Clear Expectations this morning. Yeah, no troubles. Could you describe your practice and what events led you to co-authoring Clear Expectations? So I'm a visual artist and I work mostly in performance um, and in video. And my work is interested in relationships and listening and also language, um, which kind of has led on to some written work um, that I've done for different magazines and art organisations. Yeah, with writing Clear Expectations, Spence first approached me asking if I'd be interested to work together on a guideline document for galleries and curators, and that was January 2018, so just over a year ago. But Spence and I originally met in late 2017 when we both had some of our artwork included in a retrospective exhibition here in Melbourne. And through that experience, we both found that we had some issues with how gender diversity was being represented in that show. So it really kind of led on to recognizing the need for a suggested standards. This work was written by you and Spence, um, but there were also several other artists involved throughout the process. Could you tell us who they were and what they did? Yeah, the guidelines really came from countless conversations that both Spence and I have had with friends and with colleagues who are working in the arts. Uh, yeah, conversations about representation, ethics, accountability, consultation. But yeah, with regard to specific individuals who helped us out, um, Babak Saeed, who's a writer and performance artist, edited the resource, and E.O. Gill, who's a visual artist, proofread it for us. And we intend for the second version of the document to include a community consultation process. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and we were very um, clear that all of the people who assisted us with the document be from our community as well. So even the, um, we sought out a design agency which has been owned and run um, by another trans person. So yeah, that was really important to us that community be involved in every single step. 
And how long did the process take? You mentioned that you, obviously, this kind of idea was bubbling around when you met up with Spence. But how did it kind of work writing this guideline across two cities? So because I'm in Melbourne and Spence is in Sydney, working together long distances involved a lot of phone and email conversations. Um, and we really consciously took a slow burn approach to researching and writing. We took turns holding the workload around our individual commitments. We were really clear that the document should be written in our voices and from our personal experience. And I think the strength of that is that it advocates for trans voices and also artist voices as a legitimate and needed source material. So throughout the process, we were both really adamant that our voices should not be pro uh, compromised or censored. And I'm really proud to say that that was the case. I think that there's something very, very commendable about and important about the fact that you were both able to create a, you know, a piece of writing that does tackle, you know, gender diversity, but also the identity of being an artist at the same time and how that also kind of changes the way that you move through a certain space. This guideline addresses the issues with the growing kind of focus on representation and visibility for marginalised artists. Specifically, it acknowledges the complexities of hypervisibility for trans, non-binary and gender diverse artists. Could you outline why visibility can be harmful? Yeah, so when you are gender non-conforming or gender diverse in any way and you're making or doing anything that gets seen in public, it can become apparent pretty quickly that being seen is not necessarily good for you. Being seen involves having to answer to other people's language and opinions about what they think that gender variance is supposed to represent or mean. And I've found, and Spence has found, and many of our friends have found that trans and gender diverse artists are included in projects with the expectation that we'll make work or speak about our experiences of gender, which is ultimately a limiting position for anybody to be put in and it's also really problematic when that's done in a tokenistic or last minute way and I think also in the arts we think of visibility and representation as a good thing or it's also used as a currency so there's that idea that exposure is going to eventuate in future opportunities. Visibility doesn't necessarily lead to respect or proper consultation or resources or even ongoing connections. Yeah, and I think you outline later in the guideline about this idea of meaningful and ongoing kind of curatorial process, like before and after. I'll get to that question mm -hmm. in a second, but I, <laughs> I did really want to say that I think that is a really important idea, especially around the idea of hypervisibility. There's this focus on representation and being visible, but the thing is... In some ways, we are already visible. We're already entirely hyper-visible. I don't know. There's no meaningful capital that we get out of that besides providing potentially someone else that capital. expectations outlines the need for inclusion and support throughout and even after the curatorial process. What does that look like for you? To me, that looks like inclusion being integral to the curatorial philosophy, which is kind of what you were just speaking about. It looks like curators and organisers taking the time to learn 
and understand the experiences of the artists who they're actually seeking to work with. Um, and it means it means approaching artists with as much kind of like knowledge and respect as possible. So it comes down to practical things like language. So asking an artist what their personal pronouns are, letting artists know what bathroom facilities are available in your venue and also making those facilities accessible, not just for artists, but also for your public or your audiences who are coming through. And perhaps most importantly, it looks like including artists within the conversation about install and publicity. And in those conversations, really allowing artists to have autonomy over their contribution and their public image. I think support looks like curators investing in our practices through committing research time, finding out what artists are up to uh, once you've finished working with them, attending their exhibition openings or other events. Um, it looks like feeding relevant links or reading material back to artists. Another form of ongoing support is requesting paid consultation work uh, wherever future projects involve ideas about gender or embodiment or sexuality or anything in relation to gender diversity. I've noticed personally more and more curators kind of approaching um, groups of marginalised artists and being like, I want to do a show about this and here you guys all are. And then everyone in the group is kind of like, cool, but have you, do you have any like research in this? Have you done any right. research? I feel personally very uncomfortable. And then yeah. it's been this kind of awful moment where all the artists are like, well, I, I don't really want to be a part of this show. Like I'll only be a part mm. of the show if the other artist is a part of this show. And then everyone's mm -hmm. kind of trying to figure out the way to tell the curator being like, we don't even want to do the emotional labour of trying to tell you what you're doing wrong because mm. that is... That is labour, but we should be paid for that. When you are approached by a gallery or a curator or whoever in the arts, what are some of the warning signs that make you second-guess working with them? Yeah, well, I think what you just mentioned is like a good starting point, so actually connecting with the other, the other artists who are involved in whatever project and asking them, during the process, how they're finding that experience, um, and then perhaps in whatever way is possible, like collectively organizing or deciding a way forward. But yeah, it can be really hard to know what someone's position or, or reasoning is for asking you to be involved in a project. So I always ask curators or organizers how they came across my work and why they're interested in me contributing. And I find that I can tell pretty quickly if people are genuinely interested in my ideas because they'll ask respectful questions from that point. And if that person doesn't seem able to engage in a conversation about ideas or politics, I generally feel that it's probably not worth my time. I always also ask to know who else is in an exhibition or project before deciding whether to take part. Uh, because I've found that sometimes organisers will say one thing and do another. So sometimes a person will say that a range of different perspectives are included, but it doesn't actually mean that they have an intersectional or a diverse list of artists who have agreed to be involved. What are you currently working on? Um, at the moment, I'm working towards my next performance project, which is a new series of 
performances that will take place as part of the exhibition titled National Anthem at Buxton Contemporary in Melbourne. And I'll be performing in May and June. And that work involves a custom-built microphone preamp that's going to amplify my heartbeat through a speaker system. And then that sound of my heart will be accompanied by my voice. And I'm going to attempt to sing along in time with my changing heartbeat. This interview will air on the Transgender Day of Visibility. What do you hope this day will do for trans and gender diverse and non-binary people? I hope that we can have more complicated conversations about visibility. Some people want to be visible and for other people that's dangerous or it's not desirable. And for some people it's not possible for a whole host of different reasons. I hope that we can talk about every person determining their own gender and make that idea more accessible for all people. I hope we can honour and seek out not just empowered visions of gender diversity, but also honour and seek out empowered gender diverse voices. Uh, But I really feel that Transgender Day of Visibility is for trans people to come together as a community in whatever small events are unfolding. That was an interview with Archie Barry. If you missed the first half or technically the second half, be sure to listen back via FBI Radio's website or iTunes or Spotify. Up next, we're going to chat about what's on next week. But before that, we're going to go to our next track. This is Soft Power with If You Want to, If You Come Around, You Know What Happens. Our newest music curator, Makita, released the 12-inch of this record when she was in her late teens. Go you. It was um, the secret project of Inderi Joel Stern, who's the um, director of Liquid Architecture, and Sophia Boris, um, and a few other musicians. The record was apparently the product, yeah, of, of, of a late-night jam between friends, which I kind of really love and it's super it's such a privilege to be able to play um that track today i'm sabella d'souza by the way and you're listening to canvas on fbi radio 94.5 and this is a part of the show where we let you know what art events we think are worth checking out this week well it isn't an art event but you know we have been talking about trans day of visibility and there is a rally on today at 1 p.m at the hub which is the corner of king street and enmore road if you have time it would be really great if you could come out the issues that were kind of addressed today and the complexities of visibility and who is more visible than others in mainstream media was kind of tackled by our guests, Oni and Archie. Mm. And I think that they'll also be addressed in further detail at the rally, you know, understanding that, you know, trans women of colour are one of the most highly visible and also wants to face you know, violence and discrimination um, is really, really important and something that we really want to reiterate and that oppressions intersect on a systemic level. And it's great to talk about diversity, but it's also really important to talk about meaningful inclusion and ongoing kind of, I don't know, commitment to community. So true. Um, We'd like to thank you for listening Um, A special thanks to our guests for being so honest and open with us this morning. Thank you, Oni Blue and Archie Barry. Um, Also thank you, In Spirit Spence (laughs) Nessie, who wasn't here but obviously spoke in consultation with Archie um, 
with the interview answers that we did today. So that was really good. You can find the links to all the events mentioned today on our website, fbiradio.com, under the tabs programs and then Canvas. And Canvas was brought to you by a team of artists, David Capra and Sibella D'Souza. We're leaving you today with a second track from Akita's EP, Life Trap, which comes out on the 5th of April in on Melbourne label Nice Music. Um, which is very soon. Congratulations, Makita. Um, thank you so much for picking the tracks this week. We've had such fun with the music. Tune in next for Weekend Lunch with Martin Reyes. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.